This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello, it's Paul Wheelock and welcome to your latest podcast on the Blood Red channel. You don't need me to tell you what a successful season it has been for Liverpool Football Club and the strides that have been made under Jurgen Klopp. But while glory on the field is what it's all about for us as football supporters, there's no getting away from the fact that what a club does off the field is vitally important in today's game. And the good news for Liverpool is they are in very good health in that respect. That is underlined by the special guest of this podcast, Kieran Maguire, who is one of the leading football finance experts and who lectures in the subject at the University of Liverpool. We talked the money Liverpool have made in winning the Champions League, why they could soon catch and surpass Manchester United off the pitch, having already knocked them off their pitch on it, Manchester City and FFP, one next for FSG, and should he choose just how much Jurgen Klopp could spend in the transfer market. Thanks for joining me and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Well, hi Kieran, thank you very much for joining me on the Blood Red Podcast. It's great to have you on again. Thanks very much, Paul. It's, it's great to be back uh, on what's been a, a very successful year for uh, at least half of Merseyside. Most definitely. We, we actually spoke for the first time this time last year uh, after Liverpool lost the, the 2018 Champions League final. You know, this year, as you mentioned, then has been even better for the club. They've gone one better in the Champions League winning it. And, and it's clear they've gone from strength to strength on the field. But as you were saying there, very much the case off the field too? Um, very much so, because uh, the Champions League was, was revamped financially uh, at the start of 2018-19 uh, and Liverpool have very much been the, uh, the major beneficiaries of that. So they, they've made €111 million Euros, uh, as a result of getting to the final and that's purely in prize money. So on top of that, of course, they've got merchandise sales and gate receipts and, and things of that nature. So it, it's been, uh, you know, from, a fan, from, a, from a football finance perspective, it's been superb. But uh, you know, obviously, from a fan's perspective, you, you can multiply that by a factor of one hundred in, in terms of the enjoyment that it's provided. Of course, you know it's interesting what you say there because competing in the Champions League year in year out brings that prestige and and the potential to bring in and retain the best players. So, it is, but is it fair to say then now that it's increasingly important financially too, given the rewards on offer if you make it far like Liverpool have done in in this season? Yes, I, I think that's, that's a fair assessment. Um, the the difference between the Champions League and the Europa League is uh, Liverpool in, in winning the uh, in winning the Champions League they made 111 million euros. Chelsea in winning the Europa League would have made around about 40. So that that's your, your start point. You, you've got to qualify for the Champions League to begin with, um, and then the rewards because they are they are geared towards the senior competition by UEFA. Um, those rewards stack up as you go further and further through the competition. It's interesting because you would imagine now for the foreseeable future, unlike before Jurgen Klopp arrived at the club, that they will be qualifying and competing to win the Champions League on a yearly basis. It's a club I'd like to ask your opinion about is Manchester United because we've talked about them in the past whereby Liverpool had certainly caught up with them on the field but still had a little way to go off the field to, to, to compete with them. But given the fact that Manchester United will not be in the Champions League uh, the coming season, and given they don't seem to be in the position to challenge for those top honours in the immediate future, can Liverpool get close to them off the field now? I, I, think, I think they can certainly narrow the gap. If, if you take a look at the most recent results, which were for, for 2018, um, Liverpool were £135 million pounds behind Manchester United. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty big gap to, to narrow. But uh, the, the success that Liverpool have had this season, that will have probably 
probably knocked off for probably about 40 or 50 million of that. There will have been bonuses paid by Standard Chartered and Western Union, who are sort of the, the senior partners in, in terms of shirt sponsorship. So that would have kicked in as well. And I think the, the area where the areas where Liverpool very much had to address uh, a gap between themselves and United were, were first of all match day income um, and by getting to the final it means that Liverpool paid, played more matches than Manchester United at home um, so therefore they would have been picking up uh, gate receipts in terms of, of increased frequency of matches um, they would have been able to charge premium prices for some, especially the, the, the knockout rounds to uh, to, you know, to hospitality partners, so that would have benefited. So um, the, the match day income difference has narrowed. Uh, Liverpool had managed to to reduce that uh, as, as a result of expanding the the, the main stand, um, and they could if they could narrow that gap further uh, if they if they decide to go to a sixty thousand capacity stadium. Uh, so that's so that's one area which has been addressed. The other issue, um, I think, where where Manchester United to a certain extent. Um, and I appreciate we don't like to say anything nice about them on the other side, but is that they they were the smartest kids in the on the block when it came to generating commercial income, mm-hmm. and, and the approach that Manchester United took was to go to individual countries and say, would you like to be our official supplier of mobile phones in Thailand and then Indonesia and then in Japan, and, and Liverpool started to copy that model. Um, but what Liverpool can offer that Manchester United can't offer to partners is, oh, by the way, do you want your photograph taken with the Champions League trophy? <laughs> Which, of course, is, is very, very attractive. Um, so uh, I, I, think, I think that's something which Liverpool will be able to address. Um, it, you know, it, has been, uh, it has been discussed in, in the Echo and other media outlets that, that Liverpool's shirt manufacturing deal um, is, is effectively due due up for renewal in 12 months, and they will be negotiating on that. And, and I think that, uh, that Liverpool will be able to effectively reduce the gap to, to either a negligible amount or nothing, or even perhaps even nip ahead of United um, in, in terms of shirt manufacturing on a, on a per-season basis. United generate $75 million a season from Adidas. Um, Liverpool, because they've got the history and the heritage and, and the six European Cups uh, to offer, are, are in a position to to be able to, to sell shirts around the world in a similar way to United. United are a global brand and a global club, and, and Liverpool are very much up there with them these days, I think, as a result of, of the achievements uh, under Jurgen Klopp and, 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 of course, the history and the heritage that came before that. Most definitely. You work in, in this city. What did you make of the the scenes in Liverpool during the parade of the of the European Cup? You've talked about it being a global club there, and that was certainly on the line by the fact that you know there were seven hundred fifty thousand people on the streets of Liverpool and Merseyside that weekend. Well, as, you know, as, as a as an outsider, you know, I appreciate I've worked in, in on Merseyside sort of on and off now for about thirty years, um, but as as a, as a sport for another club. It was just simply amazing, and you know, I, I share an office at work with uh, with a red, and, and he'd gone out to Madrid without a ticket, and, and you know, I, was, I was talking to him. Well, what's the rationale behind it? He said it was never my intention to even try to get a ticket. I know I had no chance. I wanted to share the experience, mm-hmm. and I think football is is unique today in sharing uh, sort of community experiences of great joy and also great tragedy. 
and, and, and that's why we love it so much. Um, and, and the culmination of all of the effort that's been put in, uh, in, in being able to get the club to A, to get to the final and B, win it, uh, I think that manifested itself um, on, on the parade, uh, which which exceeded all expectations. Um, but uh, you know, every, everybody there had, had a great time. And it, it's things like this which give you the opportunity to, to tell your kids when and your grandkids you know, I, I was in Madrid or I was at that parade and um, these are these are exciting moments. If you talk to any football fan about the top 10 moments of their life, I guarantee at least half of those will involve the football club because of the unique place that football players that plays in our lives. Most definitely. And it's quite interesting you say that because United clearly are, are very much a success commercially, but it's almost... Uh, become a they become a butt of some jokes from their own supporters about what commercial deals they've, they've signed. But given the fact that it's not happening for them on the field, probably a bit of a naive question here. But does there have to be a balancing act between it all, or, or, or clubs the size of Liverpool and United now just far past that? They just have to think of you know the pounds and the dollars. I, I do think there does have to be uh, some form of compromise because if you take a look at some of the criticism that's being levelled at Manchester United, is that uh, I mean, I think the comments from Ed Woodward were very ill-advised, where he said, we don't have to win football matches to make money. Now, you send that that message out to uh, your hardcore reds, your hardcore people who have been going to Old Trafford year in, year out, from, from the days before sort of the, the Sir Alex Ferguson uh, legacy period arrived, then, then they're going to bristle at that. Um, if you take a look at United, Manchester United have offices in London, where their, where their commercial department effectively operates from, and Manchester is an afterthought. Um, and I think there is a, a viewpoint uh, amongst critics. And, and if, a, if a club is not, if a club's playing well, nobody cares. If a club is, is, is uh, generating trophies, then, then issues of this nature um, are, are just brushed off. But it, uh, there's, there's an argument for saying that the Manchester United is being driven by the needs and the demands of the commercial department. Um, and, and the, the football comes second to that and, and you can get away with that I think on a short term basis um, but if, if, that, if that happens over a longer period of time then that is going to impact upon success on the park um, but, you know, if, you, if you take a look at some of the, the signings by United have they taken a, a Galactico approach in, in trying to sign the likes of Paul Pogba partly due to the fact that he's got so many Instagram followers as well as the fact that there's no doubting he's a very good footballer. But in three years at Old Trafford, he's he's sort of, he's shone in parts. He's he's a good penalty taker and he has some interesting haircuts. (laughs) That's an awful lot of money uh, for somebody who is very much a marketing tool as far as the commercial department is concerned. And I think that will into their decision as to whether they choose to sell him or not. I think the, the noise is coming out of Old Trafford is that they want to hold on for it for at least one more year. But uh, you, you shouldn't have the commercial department influencing um, activities which take place on the field of play. Why on earth are Manchester United playing Leeds United in Australia for, for, as part of their pre-season warm-up? You're moving from time zone to time zone to time zone isn't, uh, I think, in, in the best interests of uh, professional athletes um, when it's being driven by the commercial department rather than the manager and the coaching staff. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. 
to the other Manchester club. Uh, I was reading a report from your university uh, that it conducted quite recently and it, it was saying that Manchester City had overtaken United as the highest value club in English football. City have enjoyed an unprecedented season, you know, becoming the first English club to, to win the domestic treble. But there are some difficulties around the corner for the club with regards to financial fair play? I mean, yes, I think, I think UEFA is, uh, is questioning the, the legitimacy of some of the transactions um, in respect of financial fair play and sort of give, give an explanation as to how FFP works. Um, it, it's based on achieving a certain level of profit or, or minimising your level of losses. And, and losses and profit, it's, it's revenue-less costs. The, 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 the criticisms that have been levelled at Manchester City is that perhaps their, their revenues have been inflated to a certain extent. Um, and, and if you take a look at the numbers, uh, Manchester United have got £276 million worth of commercial income. Liverpool got 154. So, yeah, that, you know, that's going back to the issue we've just been talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah, that there is a gap, which I think Liverpool are trying to narrow. But Manchester City are 232. Yeah. And, you know, if, if I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, to have a job where uh, the university send me around the world on conferences uh, and I'm also giving talks on football finance and things of this nature all around the world. And when I, when I travel, I, I see kids in Liverpool shirts and Manchester United shirts and Chelsea shirts. I don't see many in Manchester City shirts because Manchester City are a, a relatively new addition to the Galacticos of football. And of course, it takes generations to, to develop the the worldwide appeal, which gets passed down from from parents to children, um, and they sort of inherit the, the love for an individual club. That, that's not a criticism of Manchester City, in, in no more than it's a criticism of Everton or other clubs mm-hmm. who are in equal situations. But you know, they don't have the gravitas. They can't go. You know, Manchester United. Everybody can point to 1958. You know, the, when when United beat uh, Bayern Munich. Um, when they did the treble, it was a great achievement. Yeah, whether, whether you loathe United or you loathe them, you've still got to tip your hat to them and say, well, that, that was a spectacular achievement and that helped yeah, a, a generation of new fans uh, join in with them. And I think Liverpool have got that going back to the 80s um, you know, under uh, Shanks and, and, and Paisley and Kenny and so on. Um, but that was beginning to drift. I think Jurgen Klopp has, has reversed that. Um, but uh, in terms of Manchester City, they play great football, but they, something isn't, you know, the magic um, element, sort of the Disneyfication of yeah. the club doesn't exist in the same way that it does in, in respect of United and Liverpool. And to a certain extent, Chelsea, uh, I mean, Chelsea sort of been, have been the London glamour club for a long period of time. So, yeah, Manchester City's commercial income looks top-heavy. How can you do that? Well, the accusation is that City have signed deals with friends and partners of the, the club owner who have paid inflated prices. Whether that's true or not, that's for the UEFA committee commissions to decide. Um, the, the other issue in respect of Manchester City is, as I said to you, the profits are, are revenue-less costs. Well, is it possible to suppress costs? If, if you take a look at Manchester City... They are owned by something called the City Football Group, mm-hmm. who also own clubs in Uruguay, in Australia, in New York. Uh, they've got a part share in a club in Spain. That They're looking at clubs in, in Asia as well. And what you can do 
those the people who are critics of Manchester City will say, well, they, what they're doing is they're shifting costs incurred by Manchester City towards some of these other clubs, so therefore they don't count towards City's financial fair play. And I think the third area where Manchester City is being criticised, and a lot of people would say, actually, this is a really smart thing to do, was the guy that wrote the FFP rules for UEFA, he was then headhunted by Manchester City, <laughs> and he's now their finance director. So <laughs> if anybody's going to know where the bodies lie, then it's going to be the guys who wrote the rules. Now, <laughs> in any other business, you think, well, that's a really smart thing to do. In football, because there is always this finger-pointing and this whataboutery, it means that there are criticisms levelled at the club. Whether that is true or not, might not. Yeah, we will we will find out in due, in due time. But without being too speculatory, they have been in trouble with FFP before five years ago in two thousand and fourteen. They got a bit of a, a slap on the wrist. But there is there's no question if these alleged breaches are proven to be true, there will be more serious consequences for the club in in terms of Champions League participation. Yes, um, certainly the noises coming out of UEFA have been uh, pretty serious, um, with, with a view to a potential twelve month ban from the Champions League. I would think that if that is the case, um, that is very unlikely to take place for 2019-2020. And the reason for this is, first of all, Manchester City will appeal, um, and, and that appeal process will take time. And, and the Champions League is starting reasonably soon. And I think also, to be fair to City, they can legitimately claim that their recruitment and, and their budgets for 2019-20 are based on being Champions League participants. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't just take away, you know, you know City would have made uh, around about £80 million last year from their progress in the Champions League. You can't just, as, as, as a, as a snap, you know, just snap your fingers and say, you're not going to get that money anymore. So if a decision is made, I think we're looking at 2020, 2021. Um, and, and my understanding is that Manchester City will fight tooth and nail to uh, protect the, their name. And, and you can understand that. Um, so ex- expect very heavy-duty lawyers at some very heavy-duty prices to be involved in in, uh, in in defending Manchester City. I think it will go to um, the UEFA committee, which looks at this, and, and that's that's, uh, that's uh, normally governed by by three people with a legal background, and then potentially it will go to the court for arbitration for sport for a final decision. Um, but City will fight uh, any any proposals by UEFA to to prevent them. So a good payday for the lawyers then, no doubt about that. Like, what's, what's your opinion on FFP in general? I know I was watching one of the videos that you uh, wrote a script for recently and UEFA was saying that it's all about improving the overall financial health of European football. Do you go along with that? I'm fairly sceptical of that. Uh, in my view, the purpose of financial fair play is to ensure that we don't get another Manchester City or another PSG in the form of um, a, a less wealthy club effectively getting a sugar daddy who's prepared to put in hundreds upon hundreds of millions of pounds in order to catapult them up into the the, uh, the elite league um, to, to rub shoulders with Real Madrid, Barcelona and Bayern, Liverpool and, and Manchester United and so on. Um, FFP, because it is profit-based, um, means that it's practically impossible to, to double your wage bill and to double your transfer bill transfer expenses uh, in order to be able to compete with the clubs who presently sort of tend to occupy you know, the quarterfinals and semifinals and finals of those competi- of uh, 
Champions League competition. And, and as we were discussing earlier, you generate so much money from the from the, the final stages of the Champions League. It gives you um, a significant financial advantage at the start of every season. On top of the fact that you've probably got a bigger stadium, you've already got a squad who have been recruited at a vast expense. So, so the, the aim is to is to permeate or, or, is, or is to keep as, as permanent um, the glass ceiling between those clubs who are presently scrapping the Champions League trophy and those who are perhaps aspirational to do so. And that kind of leads into the potential changes to the structure of the Champions League itself, I imagine. Yes. Uh, the, the Again, this is all sort of conjecture, but uh, it does look as, as if UEFA's main concern is the creation of uh, some form of breakaway league by, by the elite clubs. And one of the ways of addressing this is to make it very difficult to not qualify for the Champions League. So one of the proposals was um, instead of having uh, the, the, the present structure in, in terms of the number of groups, um, it, we, we will have four groups of eight or perhaps even increase to 40 or 48 clubs, in which case you could have six groups of eight. So then you're guaranteed 14, uh, 14 games in the group stage. Um, and, and then, of course, there will be significant matches to play in the knockout stages as well. So that would increase the money um, for the clubs participating, but also to have only, uh, if you've got uh, groups of eight, seven of those clubs are guaranteed to to play in in the following year's competition. So by having no relegation from from the Champions League, this would uh, keep the the, the major clubs happy Mm -hmm. uh, because they know they have guaranteed income coming in and therefore they are less likely to want to set up their own private competition, um, which will no doubt be underwritten by a Japanese banker and a major Middle Eastern concern with with some American TV interests. Um, These are sort of the the nature of the players involved. People who who don't have a historical kinship with football um, and who who don't remember the the glory days of a club in, in terms of Liverpool have had to fight to get to where they are, um, and, and I think all you know, all good Liverpool fans can, can remember uh, you know, the, the fallow years as well. By having effectively guaranteed success, I think that takes something away from from the achievements of the club in, in whatever type of form. So, we, so I wouldn't want that to, to go to arrive going forwards. As a football fan, you start off the season with hope. Uh, and certainly the achievement of Leicester City in, in 2016 has given everybody hope, even though the big clubs have done their utmost financially since Leicester won the, the, the Premier League to ensure that that never happens again. Most definitely. Uh, you, you look at Leicester, it, it was a miraculous achievement. And it, it was probably one of the last fairy tales in the English game. But if you do scratch below the surface like you do, anyone who follows your uh, Twitter account will will see how much work you do not on just big clubs like Liverpool, Manchester United and Liverpool but ones lower down the English pyramid clubs who are on our doorstep like Bolton and Barry and it is against this backdrop isn't it of a time where the elite are getting richer and richer the big six in this country are seemingly getting stronger all the time that, but there are some well established historic clubs who are really struggling in this country Yes and, and, and that's such a shame so yeah we've seen Not County the you know, the oldest club in, in English football is to a certain extent um, you know, they've dropped out of of the football league and, and that's that's fine 
fine to an extent. You know, promotion and relegation is part of the game. But you know, if you then take a look at the finances behind the club and, and the fact that there are issues in terms of the owner, um, he's, he's got financial problems. His other companies have gone into uh, administration. Uh, the, the issues which are taking place at uh, Bury at present, uh, it looks as if the, the owner there is who who bought the club in December for a pound and stopped paying the wages in February. How on earth was that allowed to happen by the EFL? And also, you've you've got to question, the the owner has been transferring the assets of Berry Football Club to his other companies. And now that could be a legitimate price. Again, I've not seen the documentation. I'm not qualified to really comment. But there's been too many strange activities at that club. And yet they still managed to get promoted. You know, and this is this, this amazing thing about football in that you've got a manager and a group of young professional athletes who, regardless of all the chaos that's surrounding them, they're not getting paid wages. They're having to, yeah, they're having to give youth players bus fares to get to training and all of this. Somehow they had that element of camaraderie to still get themselves up to League One. But now they face starting the season on minus 12 points. Bolton are definitely starting the season on minus 12 points, and that might go up even further. It, it, it's it, in, in 2019 to have a professional football club such as Bolton Wanderers unable to fulfil its fixtures because of a dispute about pay with, with safety officers is, is catastrophic for the game. Uh, and I think the, uh, the governance uh, in respect of the EFL has to be, has to be questioned. Um, it, it seems to have just allowed these things to happen. Uh, so, so, you know, I have been quite critical of of some of the administration and governance procedures within the game. Um, it, it's happening too often to just be one of those things. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm sure all, you know, Liverpool fans are Liverpool fans first and foremost, but nobody wants to see another club go out of business or to have this horrendous position of food banks being set up to to look after the staff of football clubs when there is wealth in the game. And to be fair to the Premier League, and I know the Premier League is, is, is an easy target, the Premier League does give significant sums of yeah. money mm-hmm. to the clubs further down the pyramid. How is that money being spent? Why, why, is, why is it in, in the championship? You've got some clubs who are spending £240 in wages for every £100 in revenue, and the EFL are just saying, yeah, that's fine. Absolutely scandalous, and I'm sure Liverpool fans listening to to this will express their sympathy for for clubs like Barry and Bolton because they've got a social conscience. You see, with the work they've done with food banks on the, in this part of the world, that certainly proves that case and, and many other examples. And you know, it probably wasn't too long ago that Liverpool were in not a, a similar situation to to Bolton and Barry, but you know, the Hicks and Gillette era was not too long ago, was it? And it kind of like does underline what's what's kind of happened in these last nine years since FSG have took over from from those two people. I mean, yeah, Hicks and Gillette nearly bankrupted the club. I, I, I think if you do take a look at the numbers and, and then you start to look at some of the documentation which was which has now come to light, uh, Liverpool's uh, Liverpool's financial situation was was very very precarious, um, and that's that's less than a decade ago. Uh, and as you say, I think one of the great things about Liverpool the club, and also to Everton as well, you know, as an outsider, I do see that talking to fans is that they do have. Um, a lot of knowledge of, of the wider issues in football you know, in, in terms of it being a social good as well. But FSG have come in and, and they, they have um, 
reinvigorated the club, certainly the recruitment of Jurgen Klopp and giving him a competitive budget has allowed the club to progress on the field, which in turn has allowed them to, to be involved with uh, developments such as the extension of the stadium and, and competing for, for all trophies um, uh, that, that, that they now enter, which you know, they weren't in a position to do four or five years ago. What do you think's next for FSG? You know, do you think even as billionaires, millionaires, you you can't have not failed to have been moved by those scenes after the Champions League win? Am I, or am I being a bit naive here? Or do you think they may eventually they may see it as as an investment and they will eventually move on? Or do you think they've seen what's happened over these last few years under Jurgen Klopp and think, wow, we we really need to stick around to see what happens next? Um, I, I think I think to a certain extent, every man has his price. But yes, they. Even if they claim to be purely looking at the balance sheet and the profitability of the club, um, nobody can have nobody associated with the club can fail to have been impressed um, with with the achievements and, and also the great emotional outpouring that, that has has arisen as a result of uh, winning the Champions League. Um, I think if FFG have got any sense, and, and they do have a lot of sense. They, they can they can ride both horses. Mm-hmm. Um, they know that the continued success of the club in terms of generating trophies will increase its global appeal. Um, that will allow them to sign better contracts with sponsors. That will generate extra income, which will generate better players, which will mean more trophies. And all of this is, will, will, gen- will create a virtuous circle, which will increase the value of the club should they choose to sell. Now, given that they are billionaires to begin with, they don't need to sell. Um, you know, there, there's certainly no pressure coming from the other elements of, of their empire. Um, so um, if, if you are uh, a high net worth individual, as I think uh, the owners could, could quite categorically be called, um, you, you are looking for assets of a different nature. Um, and Liverpool Football Club is, is unique in that regard, in that it comes from a city which is universally known uh, for a variety of reasons. You know, partly to do to the sporting links, but you know, clearly um, you know, the, the, the success of the music scene in Liverpool and its history in terms of a port and so on do give it a, a much much greater global footprint in terms of the, of, of awareness. Because when, when I when I travel the world, you know, I say I work at the University of Liverpool, you know, it, it's it's straight in with are you a red or a blue? You know, have you, have all, all of the questions that you'd expect. This is, this is this doesn't matter which country I go to. Um, so I think they're aware that if they bought the club for 300 million, they could sell it for 2 billion today if they wanted. But why not stick around for another three years, four years? Because it could be worth 3 billion. Um, so there are, there are benefits in making sure that the club is run financially well because that then feeds into activities on the pitch. But also the, the, the success on the pitch all generates the, the financial benefits as well. So why not just carry on with that if, if you don't need to sell? Because it is great fun to be watching uh, a side play pretty exhilarating football, um, generating all of this positive publicity uh, and, uh, and, and providing moments of excitement which, which do get lodged in the memory for a long time.
most definitely. Just one final question. It has to be about transfers at this stage of the year. Uh, when we spoke this time last year, you, you accurately predicted that Liverpool had the capability of spending, I think it was £150 million plus last summer, which they duly did on people like Alisson and Cater and Shakiri. And uh, the, But the word coming out of Anfield is that the club won't be spending big money this summer because Jurgen Klopp is, is pretty happy with his squad. But if Liverpool did want to go big on someone, you know, a, a player they have targeted for the last couple of seasons becomes available, have they now got the capability to just do that? Oh, very much so. Uh, yeah, uh, they, they finished second in the, the Premier League and they actually generated more money from TV uh, in the, from the Premier League than Manchester City because they were on television live more often. Um, you, you combine that with the, the additional revenue from the, the uh, UEFA Champions League, uh, Liverpool's cash reserves are high. Um, they, they can sign practically anybody they would choose to do so. Um, if, if Jurgen Klopp feels that there is still uh, one or two places missing uh, in terms of the squad, could they spend £50 million, £60 million on a player today? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we've just seen Manchester United sign Juan Bissaka about, about an hour ago, I think, um, for £50 million. You know, the, the benchmark in terms of prices for players keeps increasing. Um, in terms of, of the transfer market. But Liverpool, first of all, they're, they're in that position where they don't need to sell, um, where players don't want to leave. Um, you know, we had the issues with Coutinho, Suarez and Sterling. Well, I don't think those issues are going to arise again for a while. So I think they're in a very strong position uh, in, in terms of being able to recruit um, from, from the markets where, where they would normally expect to be associated. Um, they, don't, they could spend another £150 million if they wanted to this summer, as you, as you rightly said, that I think Jurgen Klopp's very pleased with the squad, and also that they, they've uh, they've had some absolute bargains in, in the likes of Robertson and, and of course um, Trent Alexander-Arnold coming through through the academy. Yeah, that that saved them a hundred million. Um, so it, it's not just spending big, but spending smart as well, which which you've got to give the club credit for. Most definitely. Kevin, thank you very much for your fantastic insights again. Can't wait till we catch up later in the season once all the football's kicked off again. Thank you very much. Listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.